Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Hello and good evening, everybody. Hope you had a wonderful Wednesday. It's great to see you here. Uh, Do you know that we are winding up our fall series? I just enjoy it so much. I hate to see it come to an end. Uh, Alan Webster is the caboose, so he's going to come tonight and he's going to be talking about evangelism. And he's a great one to do that. And we love Alan Webster so much. Uh, Just thankful that we're living in the generation where where he's doing all the things that he's been doing. He's such a great, tremendous innovator of all things evangelism. And uh, house to house, heart to heart, PTP, and many other things. And he's just so very talented. He uses his imagination for the kingdom of God. Isn't that great? And so we're so very thankful that he's here. Uh, He's an instructor at MSOP. He spent some time there, also some time in uh, Jacksonville. We're thankful that he's here. And our theme this year has been things that truly matter. And certainly evangelism is very, very important in the mind of God. And it's also important to us as well. Already working on next year's uh, fall series, Sharing Wisdom About. And so we're building that. And uh, we'll have speakers like B.J. Clark and David Leip and Steve Hickenbotham and many others. And so we're looking forward to next year as well. The last thing Jesus did before going back to heaven was to take a nail-scarred hand and pointed it at a world that was lost and said, go. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Think about that word gospel, G-O-S-P-E-L. The go is obvious from that text, go into all the world. The E-L could represent the benefits of the gospel, everlasting life. So what stands between a sinner and everlasting life? S-P. Some person. Could that person be you? Could that person be me? Earth's population passed 8 billion people, we're told, this month. Wikipedia says that there are 3 million members of the Churches of Christ. I don't know how accurate that is, but let's assume that it's accurate. You divide 8 billion by 3 million, you come up with... 2,667. Every Christian on earth needs to reach 2,667 people with the gospel for everybody to have an opportunity to hear the gospel. Now, remember, more people are being born every day. And people are leaving this world who've never heard the gospel. Who's going to reach my 2,667? 
if I don't? Who's going to reach your 2,667 if you don't? Let's talk about evangelism tonight. We're going to look at fours. Four levels, four questions, four rules. Four levels of evangelism. We have made evangelism too complicated, too professional, too elite in the church. We think of evangelism as somebody who really knows the Bible well, who sits down at a table, a kitchen table with someone and goes through a list of scriptures that he or she has memorized and they have some questions to ask and then they can answer the objections that usually come up and at the end they're very persuasive to help someone become, make the decision to be baptized. Well, that's, that's one level of evangelism, but that's not evangelism. There are four levels. And there's not a person in this room who is a Christian who can't participate in evangelism. Even if you were baptized today, you could already participate in evangelism. What are the four levels? Number one, reporting. Reporting. Acts 2.46 says, and they had favor with all the people, the they, Christians, the people, non-Christians, they had favor with all their community. How did, they, how did they have that favor? Somebody is talking positively about the church. Now, all of us can do this. Let's think about how you might, you might, even, you might even start tomorrow, if not tonight. You go to work and you're in the break room. Maybe you're across the desk from someone or the assembly belt, whatever the environment is where you work. And you say to your coworker, you know, I was reading this morning in, in Ezekiel, and I've got this verse, I don't know what it means. Let, tell me what you think this means. And you either read it to them or quote it to them. Now, they may have less idea about what it means than you, but you have started a religious conversation. They might say, well, I think that means... And they might be right, they might be wrong, but you're talking about the Bible to them. Or you might say, you know, yesterday we had, our preacher had the most interesting sermon. It's been on my mind, I can't get it off my mind. He preached about, and just go through a synopsis of the lesson. You're not asking them to believe it. You're not asking them to agree with it. You're not asking them to nod their head and say, well, I wish I'd been there. You're just reporting to them what happened. But if you say enough positive things about the church, this week, next week, next month, before long, they have a a favorable impression of the congregation. And and they also, uh, when they think about a Bible question, who do you think they're going to ask? The person that they've been talking to the Bible about. Anybody can report You could say, uh, you know, I was reading this tract. And I don't, I I, I just want to, you could share it with them. That's level number one. Level number two. Interaction with disciples. The people out there don't think they belong in here. 
The people out there think church is only for good people. For people that grew up going to Sunday school, vacation Bible school, Christian camp, youth rallies, that were in church every Sunday. They, they might say something like, well, I wish I'd grown up in that kind of family, but I never went. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, and I'm just not the church-going kind of person. Their their view of us is not reality. The church is made up of people that have all kind of backgrounds. In fact, I don't know most of you, but I suppose that we have those who never darkened the door of a church building growing up, but now you're a part of this congregation. Others did, and and then all between. So, how can we break down that barrier to get them to come into here, in here, to be comfortable, just accepting an invitation to visit? Let's say you're adding a deck on the back of your house, and you say to your buddy at work, "You know, could I borrow your skill saw? I need to cut the boards off at the end and make them make them straight. Just the last part of the deck." He says, sure, sure, I'll bring it in the morning. So he brings it, and you take it home. You do that, and then uh, you're going to take it back to it. And you call up your friend from church. You say, what are you, you, you doing anything right now? No, not, not anything important. Would you mind making a visit with me? Sure, come by and pick me up. So you go over to your coworker or your friend's house. Maybe he's out mowing the grass. And you wave, and he cuts off the mower, and he wipes his sweat, he comes up, and he says, and you say to him, I, I finished my deck, I brought your skill saw back, I really appreciate you letting me use this. Um, and, and by the way, let me, let me introduce you to John. John gets out, walks around, shakes his head. Yeah, we, we go to church together, we're out today. And, uh, and then John would say, where, where, well, what's your last name? Yeah, I work with a guy with that last name. Is that... Yeah, that's, that's my brother. You mean I work with your brother? And before long, they've got a conversation going. And now how many people does he know who attends that congregation? And then you introduce them to another. You have a, you have a community event. And they come and they meet more people. And before long, they're, they're a lot more comfortable coming in here just because they've had interaction with disciples. Level number three. Passive teaching. We had a program years ago, before I'd ever written a track, we had a, a program in a small congregation in Mississippi where I preached that was, had this acronym, R-A-T slash S-A-T, RAT SAT. People were curious about that. We put that you know, on the screen before we uh, told them what it was going to be. But what that stands for is read a tract, share a tract. So one Sunday a month the preacher, it was me at that time, would, would get enough, it was a small church, you know, like 50 tracks, and pass out the same track to everybody in attendance and say, everybody read this track this week and then give it away to somebody. Anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. You could even say, my preacher's making me give this to somebody. Would you take it? And that's okay. Or you could say, maybe more positively, I just read this track, and this is so interesting. Have you ever, have you ever uh, t- thought about this? And you show them, the, no, what does it say? Well, you can have it. That's passive. 
You're not sitting across the table looking them in the eye, expecting them to make a decision on the spot. That's, that's intimidating. That's awkward. That's more like you won't ever know if they read it or not, but they'll put it in their pocket and chances are they're going to read it. Or you're on Facebook. And your congregation back home you keep up with and you, you see the preacher's posted his sermon from Sunday and you, you know, you're, maybe you're working in the background, you're listening to it. You say, oh, that's a good sermon. You know that, that little symbol with three circles and two lines? You know, click that. Type in your friend's name, your mother's name, your sister's name, your neighbor's name, whoever you want to share it with, and send them the link and say, I just listened to the sermon. I thought it was really good. It made me think of you. I thought you might like it. There's no threat to that. Will they ever listen to it? You won't know. But likely they will. Especially if you do it, so you're passively teaching them. You're sharing, you, you may give them a book you've read. You say, this, this book, I just read this, and you, I think you might enjoy this. You can have it. Passive teaching. Then what about the fourth level? You've got to get to the fourth level eventually, and that is intentional teaching. That's what we're talking about, sitting down at the kitchen table on the couch or in a conference room in the church building somewhere and opening up the Scriptures and saying, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus requires. You know, the Gospel has facts to be believed, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ, according to the Scriptures. It has commands to be obeyed. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the mission of sins. Or the verse we started with, Mark 16.16, 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, he that believeth not shall be damned. So you've got believe, repent. What about confess? Acts 8.37, hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. Those are the commands of the gospel. Then there are, the gospel has promises to be believed, promises to be uh, to enjoy. Um, right there in that verse, salvation, remission of sins, privilege of prayer, hope, purpose in life, relationship with God. I mean, there are a lot of privileges that come with being a Christian. So, so somewhere we, we just sit down and teach them. But you don't have to do that. You might get somebody else to help with that. You, could say, you know the problem that most preachers have? Most preachers move to a community that they have not lived in before, they did not grow up, up in. You know, they come in and they have a tryout sermon. The elders talk to them and interview them, go out to eat with them. They meet everybody, they make a good impression. The sermon was good and the, and the elders offer them the opportunity to come there and preach and work with them. And, and so they come in and they, they get to know the members of the congregation. And it takes a while. But they don't know hardly anybody out there. So the challenge for most preachers is getting to the point where someone trusts them enough to let them study the Bible with them. You know, it's, it's good to knock doors, and you'll find somebody who'll study the Bible with you that way, but that takes a lot more doors than somebody who already knows you and trusts you and will accept the invitation to sit down and study the Bible. So what is that? What am I saying? I'm just saying this. Keep your preacher busy with your friends. And you sit at the table and say, uh, 
my, my preacher's got this study he does. People do it, and they love it. And, he, and he's free this next Tuesday night. If you're free, you, we're, he's going to come over to my house, and we'll all three study the... A lot of people would say, that sounds good. I think I can do that. It doesn't have to be a preacher. It could be your el- an elder. It could be a, your Bible class teacher. It could be just a member of the congregation. Get to the point where you're actually studying the Scriptures with the intent of a person obeying the Gospel and becoming part of the church. Four levels. Now let's talk about four questions. Go with me to John. Let's read together John 4. This is when Jesus is passing through Samaria, which most Jews would not do because they did not like Samaritans. Samaritans did not like Jews, and so they would go around. But Jesus must needs go through Samaria, the text says. And His disciples go into the city to buy meat, and a woman comes out to get water. He's sitting by the well. He engages her in conversation. She's reluctant at first. Why speakest thou with me being a Jew? But then He gains her trust. And she said, i got a question. Our fathers worshipped this mountain, but you, you, you Jews say Jerusalem's where men ought to worship. And Jesus said, well, it's about to change anyway. And He tells, tells her about worshipping God in spirit and in truth. Well, in that context, she goes into the city and tells them, I've met the Messiah. Well, that's reporting, isn't it? And the city empties. They all come out to the well. And there Jesus is talking to them. But in that context, read with me. In John 4, beginning at 34. This is when the disciples come back, and they've got food now. I really think this is so uh, insightful. They marveled, verse 27, that he talked to the woman. She left her water pot. When the city, verse 29, I just covered. Then they're coming out of the city, verse 30. Verse 31, in the meantime, the disciples prayed him, begged him, asked him, say, Master, eat. There's a tenderness in that. It's almost like a, a mother with a child, you know? You need to eat something. You, you haven't had anything to eat. Here, here's, the disciples are looking out for Jesus that way. You, you need to eat. You haven't had anything to eat. And then Jesus says, my meat. Uh, my meat is, he said, in other words, I don't have my appetite anymore. I, I've got something more important I'm excited about. And that's in 34, uh, 32. I have meat to eat that you know not of. And they said, Does it? they didn't understand as they often didn't. Next verse. 34 though. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me to finish his work. Now 35. <clears throat> Let's put ourselves in this. Picture the people coming out. They're about to get a Bible lesson from the Son of God. And he's seeing them come out of the city. The disciples there with him. And he's about to demonstrate how to lead a whole city to the gospel or to God through the gospel. But he says, say not ye. In other words, this is wrong thinking. But a lot of people have this thinking. Before we read it, how often do you have gospel meetings here? You have one, you have one in the fall and the spring maybe? couple times a year. When's the next one? March, maybe? Say not, we're having our gospel meeting in March. 
And then we're going to do our evangelism. I'm going to bring my friend to the gospel meeting. Let's read it. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Don't wait for four months till we have a special event that's planned for converting people. Instead, he says, behold, I said, you lift up your eyes. I suppose when he said that, they could see the people coming out of the city of Sychar toward them. Lift up your eyes, look. On the fields for they are white already unto harvest. What that means is, there are people who are interested in the gospel today who won't be interested in four months. That harvest will have passed. There will be another harvest. But there is a perennial, there is a continual harvest of people. Because people are, they're going through life. Influences, thoughts, what they've read, what they've seen, what maybe they've maybe they've lost a parent. They went to the funeral and they have they haven't been inside a church building in a while, but boy, it just really got them to thinking about when they used to go when they were a kid. And right now they're open in a way they weren't last week. If we let this pass, the door will close again. Maybe there's someone that you've been talking to, been a good influence on around at, at work, and right now. They're, maybe they're going through a divorce and they're just, a, you know, their life is upside down and they're, they're open to new ideas. They're open to attending a new congregation. But in four months, they'll be settled back into a regular routine. You see, there's always a harvest. So always be harvesting. <clears throat> Let's ask these four questions. The reason I wanted you to read that, though, I almost forgot to say. Notice the pronouns. Say not ye. Lift up your eyes. He that reapeth, 36. He that soweth, he that reapeth, 36. See, those are personal pronouns. I don't know how to say this. I don't want to come across being um, caustic or harsh. It's not meant that way at all. But sometimes we see evangelism as something that professionals need to be doing. Church isn't growing. We need a new preacher because we've got to get somebody that will get to baptizing people. Or those elders, they really need to get busy because we haven't had a baptism in six weeks here. Preachers and elders ought to teach and baptize. But it's a personal responsibility. You remember that 2,667? The preacher has his. But you have yours. I want to ask four, four pointed questions. This is almost this is like passing that track out. You know, I won't know what your answers are, or even if you answer them, but I'm going to ask them. Number one, how involved are you willing to get? How involved are you willing to get in the work of the church? 
How involved are you willing to get in the evangelism of this community? Is it something that, well, my life's pretty busy, and I don't think I can add anything else to it right now. 2,667 people. Romans 12, 3 through 8. I sometimes call God's want ads. I guess today it would be a, a community post or community bulletin board. But there are seven job opportunities in every church listed there. But the, the, the verses that lead into it say that the church is a body. And there are three, sec- three chapters in the New Testament that talk about the church as a body. Romans 12, where we are. 1 Corinthians 12. Ephesians 4. And they all have the same three points. Although they emphasize different points. But they all have unity, diversity, maturity. Unity, one body. All the members make up one body. Diversity, the body has many members. Has a mouth, has ears, has hands. So there's diversity, and that's a good thing. And then maturity, we love each other. There's no schism in the body. Um, I'm going to leave that there. Let's move to a second question. I'll come back to it. The second question is, What am I willing to risk? Think about Esther in the Old Testament. The king didn't know she was a Jew. Mordecai came to her and says, Who knows whether thou art come to the king for such a time as this? Esther 4.14, Maybe God put you where you are because God knew that this would need to happen. And God's counting on you. And she had a choice to make. Am I going to risk? Or am I going to play it safe? I've got, a, I've, got a good, I've got a good deal going. I'm the queen. I've got servants. I'm rich. I live in the palace. Nobody's going to come in here and, and take my life. But she didn't make that choice. Esther 4.16 records um, the decision she made. And if I perish, I perish. She was willing to risk it all. And you know when you read that, she goes into the king, and the rule was if you go into the king uninvited, if he doesn't reach out his scepter, then you will be taken away and executed. You didn't have permission to be in the king's presence. So you could feel her heart beating. As she comes in, maybe she's breaking out in a sweat. She comes in, and she walks down. Maybe, I don't know how big the room, probably a big room, and he's on the throne. Maybe he's talking to you know, others, and she walks up to him. And then he looks up, what mood's he in today? Is, is he angry with the people he's talking to? Is he in a foul mood? And he sees her. Will he frown? Will he smile? But he smiles. And he reaches out and she lives. She risks her life for her people. What am I willing to risk? Dr. Bob Cox was involved with the University of Texas education system. He did a study of movements, business, cultural, religious movements, and he found 
that movements typically go through three stages. Risk-taking. Let's, th- let's think about it from the church perspective. Somebody says, we really need a, we really need a church in this little town. We, we're having to drive over an hour to the nearest congregation. We need a congregation here. And so maybe two families get together over coffee and they talk about it and say, let's, let's start it. And so they, they, they rent the building. And they're a storefront. They pay for the literature, you know, for, the, for their kids in Bible class. They get out and they knock doors and they post flyers in storefront windows. New congregation starting, come visit with us. And they're talking about it. They're excited about it. And everybody they see, they invite to come. So over time, the church grows. They outgrow the storefront. They have enough contribution. They can make a building payment. They build a building. The church continues to grow. They get to where they have men qualified as elders, so they they become scripturally organized. The church reaches uh, a good size. And they move into the second stage of movements, which is caretaking. Preacher, don't rock the boat. That may run some people off. Well, some of the young people may go door knocking before our meeting. I don't have time for that. We got a good congregation here. It's a good size. We got a youth group. We got classes for every age. We're we're doing okay. Risk-taking has shifted to caretaking. Risk-taking, excited, talking, inviting, studying. Caretaking, not so much. Status quo. Third stage, undertaking. Now we're having trouble because the young people move Um, or growing up and moving away. Now there are a lot more empty seats than there are filled seats. Now, I don't know if we got enough money to make those that last three years of the building payment. Um, Both our elders getting, getting up there. There's nobody to take their place. We may have to sell the building. Risk-taking, caretaking, undertaking. Where, where are you as a congregation? If you're not in the first stage, we should always stay in the first stage. You, don't want, you certainly don't want to be in undertaking, but you also don't want to be in caretaking. I think about the church at Laodicea. I know thou work, so thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou work cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm, I'll spew thee out of my mouth. For thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Their self-evaluation we're, we're doing okay. 
We got plenty of money. Look at the contribution Sunday. Wow. You know, if we, need to, if we need to buy something, we can buy it. If the young people need to go somewhere, we can afford to send them. If we need to add on to our building, we got the funds for that. We don't need anything. We're good. Well, that was their self-assessment. It would be hard to find a more stark contrast between their assessment and Jesus' assessment of the same congregation. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. We're good. That doesn't sound good. So we want to stay in the, stay in the risk-taking stage. Before I leave that, let, let, let's chart it. Can you, are you a visual person? Can you chart it with me? Let's, so you've got three temperatures, right? Cold, lukewarm, hot. So let's go one to ten. We've got a scale. I give you the marker. The first one's blue. Come up and color what's, what's cold. What, how, how many numbers would you color? Maybe three. One, one two, three. That, that's, that's cold. So I give you the marker and you come up. It's red. Would you color what's hot on our one to ten? What would you color? Maybe eight, nine, ten. So, third marker, you don't have any choice to what to color because it's left for you. Would lukewarm, orange, yellow be four to seven, maybe? Where would you put the congregation's temperature on that scale where you attend? I assume for most of us it's here. A preacher was going to preach on commitment. He went around and asked members this question. He said, how's your relationship with God? And he said he got a lot of different answers, as you would expect. Some said it's really good, never better. Some said well, it could be better. He said, but the most frequent answer that he received was, it's okay. Where would you put okay on the scale of 1 to 10? It wouldn't be a 2, would it? But it wouldn't be an 8, would it? Would it be somewhere in the middle? Here's the point in question. Where would you mark your number? Right now. You know, it's hard to start a fire in somebody's, somebody else's heart if mine's not on fire. Fire begets fire. So what am I willing to risk? My reputation? Somebody says, I can't talk to my friend because it could ruin our friendship. They might get mad. Not, Am I willing to risk it? Somebody says, well, if I talk to my uh, mother-in-law, whew, well, that could be bad for a long time. Am I willing to risk it? Am I willing to risk my time? You know, if I start a Bible study, that may go on for several weeks and I'll be tied up every Tuesday night for the next four weeks. I don't have time for that. Really? Third question. 
how much am I willing to care? It really comes down to this, doesn't it? I think about those four friends in Mark, Mark 2. Their friend had, he was crippled at palsy. And they're carrying him, you know, like one on each corner. And they get to Jesus, and Jesus is so popular, they can't get anywhere near him. It's just a crowd of people in the house. And they're like, oh, we want to get our friend healed. And then one of them looks, hey, look. Maybe there's steps to go up the side of the... So they, let's go up there and see what we see. So they carried him up the steps. And then they say, well, he's right there. You can't see him, but I know, I hear him. He's right down, he's got to be right there. And they say, somebody break, starts breaking the roof apart. And Jesus is preaching, and the dust is, you picture, you know, and then the light's coming in. I was like, what's going on? And then they let him down right in front of Jesus. Our friend needs some help. What made them do that? Why didn't they get to the crowd and say, I'm sorry, he's busy today. Maybe we'll try another time. Why did they not give up? They loved him. Uh, this, this is a confession. and I've I never said this to anybody before, but I had a Bible study with... Uh, a couple in our congregation and her grandparents had moved into the house with them. And they were up in years. So we had several studies. But it was like sundowners, you know. It was come in and come out. And he couldn't read, never was able to read, so you had to read him the Bible, and that was fine. Anyway, long story short, I finally gave up. I thought, I don't, think he, I don't think he's getting it. I don't think his mind is where he can. You know who didn't give up? His granddaughter. Who kept teaching, kept talking to him, kept showing him. He's dead now. But we'll meet him in heaven. Because love found a way. How much am I willing to love? Love can cause pain. If they reject me, if they say no, Jesus said we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Matthew 22, 36, 37. The second is likened to it. It's like a command. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love. Fourth question. What am I willing to sacrifice? Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you therefore by the mercy of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is reasonable service. Let's sum it up with this. If my body's on the altar, there's nothing else left that I won't sacrifice. If I give me, I will give my time, my reputation, my money for the salvation of a lost person. 2,667 people in a lifetime. We have our work cut out for us, but thankfully, 
We don't do it alone. We do it with each other and we do it with God. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.